0: On this episode, I spoke with Mitch Hunter-Scullion, CEO of the Asteroid Mining Corporation. We discussed why asteroid mining is important, the opportunity it represents, and a little about the space industries more generally. That's this episode of A Brighter Tomorrow. Hello, everybody. Before we get to the interview, I've got a quick housekeeping announcement to make. Uh, a few of you got in touch to say that the supporter feature that used to be advertised at the start of the show doesn't work. That was due to a technical problem with our host, so I've decided for the time being I'm going to remove it and also remove the dynamic ads that were inserted at the start and sometimes middle of the show. So thank you to everyone who intended to support the show. It's very much appreciated. For the time being, the best thing you can do to support us is just leave a review, tell a friend, or mention the show on your social media. We are going to take a few direct sponsorships to replace dynamic ads, so if you're interested in that, the best thing to do is drop us an email at brightertomorrowpod.com at gmail.com okay now that's out of the way please enjoy this interview with mitch hunter scullion okay mitch thank you for joining us on the show
1: thank you very much for having me
0: um so just to start off um for anyone who's not familiar with you and not familiar with your business would you mind just giving us a little bit of a background just about uh, yourself and your company
1: so hello everyone. My name is Mitch Hunter I'm the CEO and founder of Asteroid Mining Corporation. Um, so I founded Asteroid Mining Corporation in my university bedroom oh, about five years ago now. Um, and essentially sort of it came from the kind of I I was writing my dissertation on asteroid mining and the economic and political benefits of it. And I was actually doing some sort of some research for my dissertation looking to see if there was any British asteroid mining businesses. 'Cause for some reason I thought British Asteroid Mining Corporation sounded like something which already existed or by extension asteroid mining corporation. It sounded like something that sort of should already exist. And when I realised it didn't, then I realised there was an opportunity there. Right. Um so registered a company. Didn't really do anything for a year with it at all. Um, I think at one point I had a plan to turn it into an art gallery of some description um, and used it to promote techno nights as well. Um, So it was all about kind of, you know, having a a business which you can do sort of all-encompassing activities with was very, um, very beneficial. Um, But then we didn't actually do anything with it at all for the first year. um, I kind of put up a a very half-hearted website. And then as a result of that half-hearted website I got my, my first team member I basically emailed me and said, um, I think you could use a bit of help. I can see what you're trying to do here, but I just don't think you personally have the skills to do sort of some of the, the more, you know, mundane stuff like website management and things like that. And I said, absolutely fine, I do not. Um so Stuart got involved and then from there got a good website, got sort of planning ideas, had a kind of started developing a, a roadmap to the utilisation of space resources. Um, And then basically from there, that led to the sort of the first major kind of breakthrough, which was the idea of the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1. And the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1 is essentially what we like to call Project Eldorado, uh, Mm -hmm. because we're going looking for the the mythical city of gold or in our case platinum. Um, But we're looking for it in space, essentially, because we know what the Conquistadors didn't, is that th- there is no Eldorado on Earth, as far as we are aware of anyway. Um, but there could easily be one in space with asteroids, just due to the um, quite significant um, wealth that's contained in metals within even just one comparatively small asteroid, then um, there would seem to be a, a quite a major economic case for at least going and taking a bit more of a look.
0: So why is it that you decided to kind of go this direction in the first place? Because you said you were kind of surprised that there wasn't already, you know, British asteroid mining company. But to me, the idea that there's any kind of uh, UK based asteroid or really any kind of UK based space industry at all is kind of surprising because it's not really something that the UK is known for. So what made you decide that you would kind of go that route when it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal over here?
1: Well, I think that it's surprising when you hear people say that space isn't something that the UK does, because there's actually, what, I think nineteen, twenty thousand people in the UK space industry. It's, um, it's not insignificant. Um, it contributes, oh, I think it contributes billions to the UK economy annually. Um, it's it's a, it's a growing market as well. Um, the sort of the government's goal is to capture ten percent of the global space industry by 2030. And they seem to be sort of with things like the acquisition of OneWeb, sort of putting money behind that and in order to sort of make that happen. So I think that space is definitely something which the UK, if perhaps we didn't do very well 10 years ago, is something that we do very well in now. Um, And I think that over the kind of past five years, we have seen a mentality change within space in the UK. Um, I suppose the first example of that would be um, when the UK government put £60 million into the action engines in order for them to develop the Sabre engine. And at that point, it kind of made me realise that okay, the government does the right checks um, for sort of exciting space businesses, innovative products and services which can you know radically alter our um, our industries. Um, and I suppose the spillover benefits of the of the cyber engine is that obviously if you were to be able to have Skylon going up to lower orbit a fully reusable space plane platform um, without massive um, engine sort of um, changes without needing you know three month maintenance between every mission um, then that would massively bring down the cost of access to space and by sort of extension would mean that satellites and orbital debris removal would become sort of much more economically viable. So I think that sort of at that point when I saw that investment into into um, the action engines, I realised that sort of there was definitely a strong like element of governmental support to the UK space industry. Um, and then beyond that, sort of the UK, for example, has Seraphin Capital, which is one of the um, the only space investment sort of companies on the planet. Um, it's headquarters in London, so we're sort of in quite a good space. If you pardon that poor pun, um, in the UK for going forward.
0: Yeah, I actually saw something in the news today about how um, there's a new kind of government programme for funding uh, high-tech, high-risk, high-reward industries. So I'm assuming that that's the kind of thing that probably the space industry is going to benefit from at some point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that sort of um, space isn't easy and it's not cheap. So sort of having any kind of government mechanism which allows for essentially cheap or cheaper, um, equity-free, I should say, um, reception development into technologies can only sort of bring overall benefit to UK PLC. And I think that mm. through having that kind of high-risk, high-reward strategy, that's how you go and sort of achieve the, the big goals. Um it sort of faint heart, never won fair maiden, as I like to say.
0: So this is going to sound like a stupid question and it has a very obvious answer, but uh, I think it's good to just kind of spell this out anyway. Um, what's actually the point of space mining don't we have plenty of things to mine here that are much closer
1: yeah absolutely um so for example i think it comes down to a question of what resource you're using um if you for example were interested in you know iron you're never going to go to space to mine iron um so you wouldn't you wouldn't go mine iron in space because it's not there's too much for an earth it's not economically justifiable and the cost of it is what 25 pounds a ton you can get low iron incredibly cheaply whereas with um with things like platinum group metals. Um, A platinum group metal is currently 25 million pounds a tonne and we only mine, for example, platinum, we only mined 180 tonnes of platinum last year, um, which is in itself, the entire, like the entire um, capability of Earth's production was 180 tonnes. Um, To put that into context, about 25% of that, about 50, 50 tonnes of that went into smartphone production which means for things like, you know, scientific innovation, um, developing new materials, um, new technologies for such things like um, hydrogen catalysts, um, we don't have the raw materials as a planet to support a lot of that technology development. Um, and even with the sort of the current technology that we have for things like smartphones, um, we still quite limited um and sort of just how much we can do is so one of the reasons why you know your your very sort of high capability smartphones are so expensive is because they require um sort of quite a, a significant amount of platinum metals to go into the sort of into their components and as part of that that brings the cost up however if you're to essentially half the price of platinum then if platinum came down to what even to say let's call it 10 million pounds per tonne still an expensive metal but at 10 million pounds per tonne if the supply was to be essentially doubled or tippled um, and the demand was to go up accordingly then essentially you can start to look you you can justify looking elsewhere and by elsewhere i obviously mean space um for your metals because essentially as we are Sort of essentially inelastic in supply on platinum group metals on earth um, we are kind of forced to either look to sort of environmentally protected areas of the planet such as the Arctic, the rainforest and the Antarctic or under the sea even is another one which I've been hearing more and more of um, and we don't really know what damage that will have on our planet in the long term um, especially things like undersea ecosystems like we just don't know enough about them to really justify messing with that when it may sort of, you know, have a massive knock-on effect um, on sort of the, the the biosphere of our planet. But fortunately, with asteroids, um, they're just dead rocks. They're, if, it's, it's a hard thing to conceptualise an asteroid, and I, I know it's more than most people because I try to do it every day. But if you can just imagine, like, you know, something maybe the size of a, a small hill or sort of a small mountain, um, like a Munro in Scotland. Something the size of a Munro, kinda of just floating in space, made a rock. It's uh, just a small mountain that you could, you know, go and cover material from and it's a it's a geographical position in space but the problem with um, astrodynamics is that obviously it's moving in a different orbit around the sun than we are on Earth so the the times when you can access this asteroid are sometimes limited so that is one of the limiting factors um, with asteroid mining um, however in doing so the, the whole sort of purpose of prospecting for these asteroids is to find those asteroids which are not only sort of rich, bountiful asteroids which contain, you know, all the golds and silvers of El Dorado um, but also they need to be accessible because if they could be made of solid gold but if we can't get to them we're, what's the point? We're, we're never going to be able to sort of economically justify going there. So there's definitely a trade-off between the, the sort of the economic accessibility of it as well as the, the technical accessibility of it as well.
0: Is there any kind of risk at all about um, bringing things down and kind of processing them on earth because it actually adds um, like carbon and other pollution to the atmosphere whereas if you take if you dig things up we're essentially taking carbon out of the earth putting it into the atmosphere as we process things. But essentially, at least on Earth, the balance of those materials are still all staying the same. Whereas if we start actually adding things, is there any uh, risk here that we could actually upset any kind of natural balance that we have?
1: Well, you, you touch on a very important point there, which is the kind of the environmental aspect of space mining. Um, but I think it's important to realise that um, our product development or our sort of development milestones is based upon in-space processing So, essentially, we don't want to be, firstly, because it's inefficient, we wouldn't want to be sort of bringing down the raw material from an asteroid. Um, And secondarily, because essentially it's economically unviable. As exciting as sort of the meteorite collectors would be in order to have a a, a sample directly from an asteroid, Um, you know, we could vacuum seal it for them or something, it's not going to get the same economic, sort of, it's not going to hit the tipping point we into profitability, um, which bringing back raw, defined, or pure, defined platinum would be, um, and the way to do that is to essentially process insight. Um, the benefits of this as well is that by essentially moving your processing off of the planet you can take advantage of the microgravity environment um, which in some ways is a hindrance and in other, other ways is a benefit um, so for example in the processing unit um, you don't need to depend on gravity to separate things you can use sort of electromagnetics um, for separation and that sort of has quite a, a significant um influence on things like efficiency in uh, the longer term and as well as for things as such as you know just general like processing of ore can be done quite efficiently on it e- on earth but it can be done sort of efficiently in space as well um, by taking advantage of the space environment. Um and then obviously by sort of having your essentially your defined, um your refined metal coming back to Earth. There's essentially it's important to think of not just the Earth and an asteroid as well, Working, again, a terrible space pun in a vacuum, um, because essentially by starting to look at the asteroids, you're essentially developing the beginnings of a, an interplanetary infrastructure, if you will, um, which is where okay, we're sending infrastructure up to the asteroids in order to mine, um, in order to sort of process precious metals for the Earth market. But as a byproduct of that mine on an asteroid we are also beginning to be able to essentially develop the ingredients of steel, so nickel and iron, um, as a byproduct of the, the platinum-group metal um, extraction and processing. So ultra-pure nickel and ultra-pure iron being sent to the Moon um, could essentially spur the development of a lunar base and could lead to essentially people living in the Moon. And then when people are living on the Moon, then at that point they're going to need water, water is another sort of relatively abundant element in asteroids uh, particularly your carbonaceous and silicaceous asteroids so it could get to the point where water mining eventually becomes economically viable as well as a kind of as a byproduct of metals mining in space but i think that in order to get to that point, you essentially need to focus on the the, the highest value, um, the turn, which in this instance is platinum group metals. Um, there is no other sort of element which we need so much on Earth and which costs so much, which is so abundant in space. And I think that that's one of the main um, attractions to mining in space is just the, the relative abundance. And to kind of put it into into context, that abundance, because I, I know it's sort of when you think 200 tons of platinum, that's that's quite a lot and 200 tonnes of platinum would very easily fit underneath the, the Eiffel Tower. Um, in fact, I believe I've seen something, and it, it might be anecdotal, but I'm not 100% sure if this is true or not, but I believe that all the platinum that has been mined in the, in the history of humankind could fit underneath the Eiffel Tower. Um, you can go and check that one up for yourself later if you so desire. But um, if we're only mining 200 tonnes, that would definitely be, it would weigh less than the Eiffel Tower, let's put it that way. Um, and then beyond that, uh, an asteroid, so you're Give you a bit of jargon here. A single one kilometre diameter upper 90th percentile platinum bearing metallic asteroid um, would contain approximately 117,000 tonnes of platinum. Um, so that is, you know, considerably more platinum than i have ever been mined in the history of humanity. Um, that one kilometre diameter asteroid is comparatively small, um, but I think it's the the economic value of that platinum at current market prices which is really the thing which captures imaginations um so that 117,000 tons of platinum is worth approximately 2.35 trillion pounds um so that is roughly equivalent to the gross domestic product of the uk or germany um so like essentially g7 countries um economic GDPs are essentially held in platinum alone within a comparatively small asteroid. If you're to take, you know, the rest of the platinum group metals, ignoring the iron and nickel and water and whatever else would be in the asteroid, then that asteroid is worth nine point one five five trillion pounds, um which is essentially three times the gross domestic product of the UK or if you want to be smart, the gross domestic product of Germany, France and the UK put combined, um which is quite a Quite a, a strange figure to get your head around that one asteroid yeah. could essentially provide as much wealth as a country in yeah. a year. It's um it, it's it's an amazing opportunity and I think it's sort of one of the things which definitely is going to spur the economic development of space resources going forward.
0: Yeah, there's a few things there uh that you brought up that I wanna wanna dig into a little bit, but First of all, just so that we've kind of got a bit of a better picture of what we're actually talking about, could you talk us through very briefly like a workflow? Because obviously you have to sort of find something, you have to find find a target, you prospect, you actually mine, you, um, I'm not sure, you process, you return to, well, return to the moon or Earth's orbit, wherever it's going to be used. Can you just run us through briefly what like a project would look like from start to finish?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to give you the the very full story, um, and I think that sort of this is this is a very important part of it. So, we as a space company will probably not send something into space in our first, you know, ten years of operation, um, and the reason for that is simple: is that essentially any company needs to be able to pay the bills. Um, any company needs to essentially be profitable in order to survive. Um, otherwise, what you have is a project, not a company. Um, so what we have done is we have partnered with the Space Robotics Lab at Tohoku University in Sendai, Japan, uh, to develop the space-capable asteroid robotic explorers. Scary space robots, um, as we like to say. So our scary space robots um, will essentially are designed for asteroidal exploration um, from the get-go. They are walking robots designed for use in essentially zero-gravity environments or reduced gravity environments. So, for example, Martian or Lunar Lava Tubes. Um, So these are sort of very, very capable robots that we're developing, um, but... There's a, a, an important aspect to these robots, which I think sort of really starts to tell the story here. Um, these robots are essentially one, we've identified a massive market for these robots in, in industrial and transport inspection, which can essentially pay the bills for space mining going forward for the next 10, 15, 20 years almost. Um, so essentially, phase 0.1 is to establish a a base layer of profitability generating seven or eight figure revenue um, before we even particularly look at going to space. Because in doing so, by being able to sort of sell robotics, that will fund the development of the prospecting. And this is the next phase. So the Asteroid Prospecting Satellite 1 is currently under development concurrently with the Scary Space Robots. And as part of that, it will essentially look at the, um, we'll probably look at about 45 to 90,000 asteroids um, over its Lifespan um, and essentially it will just classify and categorize categorize, um, those asteroids, and and in doing so, it will essentially be able to say that one's silicaceous, carbonaceous, or metallic, that one's valuable, that one's too far away. Um, And essentially, we've developed algorithms which will take all that data and will essentially. Churn out a list of candidate asteroids to say these ones are interesting. Um, the point of that being, we're essentially sort of looking for an answer here. Um, we're looking for you know the holy grail asteroid, which is close enough that we can get to it quite quickly and quite easily and quite regularly, um, but also that is you know rich enough and valuable enough economically that we can justify the cost of going there. We can justify you know setting up an infrastructure there in the longer term. So, once we've found that asteroid, we then move to the exploration phase, and this is where our scary space robots come back in. Um, So, essentially, the the Asteroid Exploration Probe 1. Um, is essentially a bit like a school bus, but for scary space robots. Its job is to send these robots up to an asteroid and to essentially deposit them on one or possibly more asteroids, depending on the astrodynamics. Um, And in doing so, they will essentially conduct a a ground-proofing sample. So they will manoeuvre over the asteroids, they will sort of identify various key um, sites so in conjunction with the orbiter um, and then by having essentially a, a lander slash orbiter model um, we will be able to do a, a, a total Surface map of the asteroid, looking at its essentially uh, a global surface map, looking, looking at its sort of meteorological and metallurgical components, and in doing so, that will identify mining sites, and then the scary robots will essentially be able to go to those mining sites, do some sort of ground penetration, um, and essentially prove the um, the deposits. Because the one thing that we don't want to do is to spend, you know. 200 million pounds, 175 million pounds, on a, on a mission to an asteroid, uh, to then essentially turn around and discover that it's it's just kind of it's just rock, but there's a bit of dust, yep. platinum space dust, that has somehow managed yeah. to um, kind of cover it. Um, you know it might have had a, a an impact it might have went through a, a, a an ejector sale um, and in doing so it's essentially had its surface composition sort of altered but its internal composition is not um, there is the possibility that that may happen so essentially we have to go and ground proof it um, before we can then go to the next stage which would be kind of the, the final extraction and exploitation phase depending on your terminology and in doing so um, when you get to that phase essentially you've you know you've dug deep into the asteroid you know what's there you kind of you have quite sort of strong economic models where you can use to justify um, you know the costs and essentially by being by having equipment already on the asteroid essentially you have sort of de facto priority rights over the resources within that asteroid as well um, and I think that that's a, a really interesting point that's came out as a result of the Artemis Accords that um, NASA in the US has recently sort of um, promoted and the UK has signed and Japan has signed as well um, but beyond that Essentially, once you get to the asteroid um, with equipment or with essentially extraction equipment, um, then that's the really exciting stuff happens because essentially it would probably take um, probably two rockets to get there with all the equipment required. Um, so at the minute, we're probably looking at something like using two starships, which is something like 60 tonnes capability to a deep space destination which is not going to be cheap by any stretch of the imagination Um, but essentially as a as a sunk cost into establishing a, a sustainable infrastructure um, at a deep space destination where we can essentially sort of start building and processing and mining and extracting materials and sending that out to destinations, not just the air for the moon, but potentially further, further, af- further afield throughout the solar system as we grow and expand. Um, by developing that infrastructure, that becomes a, a, a very worthwhile endeavour because ultimately it will lead to essentially the the expansion of humanity beyond kind of geostationary orbit um into sort of more deep space and sort of um wider solar system um adventures
0: yeah so in terms of that uh kind of wider space industry um if we jump ahead, say fifty years. What do you imagine that might look like? What kind of industries might we actually be moving into space? Because at the moment, aside from things like commercial satellites, most of what goes on in space is kind of research-based at the moment, isn't it? So, how might it look in fifty years if we, you know, commercialize and industrialize space a bit more?
1: Well, I suppose there's kind of this three main kind of projects that I can foresee um, coming. Probably within my lifetime, I would like to think, is in the next 50 years or so. Um, I suppose first and foremost would be sort of the establishment of space-based solar power. Um, so essentially photovoltaics and solar panels are becoming very, very cheap and very efficient and the material required for them is becoming sort of less and less expensive. So for example, if you were to go to a silicaceous asteroid and sort of recover cover silicon uh, and then bring that back to, for example, a geostationary orbit and then build at that sort of orbital slot um, and then put a, essentially you could Build a, a space-based solar power station, um, which could provide sort of significant amounts of power for sort of planetary requirements, or um, you could also have one, for example, on the moon to provide power on the moon if need be. Um, these these are the kind of things which I think are probably the next thing. I think we'll need and um, like in orbit servicing and manufacturing to um, sort of mature in order for that to sort of really kick off. But essentially, once the uh, the raw materials from asteroid mining and sort of multiple asteroids, different classifications are starting to be mined, then I would say that that's one of the, the core technologies which goes in power generation can gradually start to be moved off Earth and essentially sort of laser based sort of solar power um, can be looked at in a, in a sort of significant way. Beyond that, I think once you're sort of starting to move mining off Earth, moving sort of heavy industry off of Earth as well becomes sort of uh, an interesting possibility. Um, so one of the sort of things I've seen uh, proposed is orbital factories um, for things that you wouldn't really want to be producing on earth but there's also as a side impact of that there is also some things which actually are manufactured in a better environment in space so for example crystalline structures and sort of pharmaceuticals um, have been sort of demonstrated to be sort of more efficiently manufactured in a zero gravity or microgravity environment Um, so things like once you have the infrastructure to start building factories in space then perhaps we may see pharmaceutical factories in space um and again sort of the access to space element of that is key um but the general trend is towards sort of that coming down and the cost of access to space coming down um so in 50 years time it wouldn't surprise me if we had factories in space um, building things and then I suppose the final thing that I would expect you know 50 years or so down the line would be kind of a lunar base um and by lunar base I think, we're probably not talking in the Antarctic or it might start upon the Antarctic model so you know it might be 5 or 6 or 10 or 12 sort of intrepid explorers going and laying the foundations and the groundwork and doing the very hard things Um, but I think that that's quite a kind of a 20th century viewpoint almost of what lunar exploration and colonisation will look like Um, I think it will essentially be led by robotic infrastructure development Um, so by the time kind of humans land on the moon and sort of stay there for extended periods you know like a month six months a year um we'll have probably had sort of robots building on the moon for five maybe even ten years um in order to essentially build up an infrastructure in advance of um, any astronaut coming for a, an extended stay um and the reason for doing this is simple is because we have the the, the capability to do so. And if, if anything goes wrong, then it's not a, a national tragedy like the Challenger disaster. Um, it's, uh, you know, a robot died or a robot malfunctioned and is now out of commission. Um, unless, again, sentience, which I highly doubt, although I, I, I would worry about in the longer term. Um, I don't think we would have to be particularly sad about our scary space robots if, for example, one of them was to die on the moon. Um, so I think that with the development of a lunar base, um, essentially it won't be a case of you're sending you know six people to the moon. It'll be a case of you're sending you know 200 people to the moon. And having 200 people, so you're having essentially engineers and scientists and, you know, um, like hydroponic specialists, uh, biologists, botanists. um, By having a kind of a wide range of... Um, fields on the moon, then essentially you're sort of laying the foundations for that first kind of um, foothold in space, um, or the next foothold in space, I should say, um, post sort of the International Space Station and Lunar Outpost. Um, And then at that point, um, once you've kind of started that bedrock infrastructure, then people are going to want to stay there. Um, People are going to want to, you know, have families and like grow old in the moon um and after a certain point their physiognomy will change as well and sort of their 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 bones will become sort of lighter and more brittle um and they are kind of they will become sort of less dense um they'll become more adapted to sort of walking in one sixth gravesty um, and then after a certain point they'll become sort of slightly different from us um and they'll become you know Lunar, um, what, what would the what would the adjective for someone from the moon be? A lunatic? Um, they would be lunatics. And then once they're there, though, I think one of the main industrial projects of perhaps the second half of this century, um, once we have sort of established that permanent presence in the moon, um, would be to set up essentially a, a mass driver on the moon. Um, essentially a way of having... Sort of rocketless, um, chemical-less propulsion on space, um, where essentially you can have you know electromagnetic propulsion on the moon, taking advantage of the lunar geography, the lunar peaks, in order to have sort of a way of sending things back from the moon. And there's always a question of well, what what would you want to go to the moon to send back in such quantities anyway? Um, and I suppose that the one thing that I can foresee in the long term would be um, food. Um, if you dig out, if you dig down underneath the lunar surface, um, it's it's you're not you're thinking in terms of cubic meters, you're not thinking in terms of you know square foot um so it's you you're thinking in terms of cubic space and in doing so there's a lot of cubic space sort of underneath the moon and essentially if you dig on the moon you have radiation shielding so it'll probably be more like you know rabbits and their warrens than um sort of you know bubble type domes in the surface um and again that would all essentially require the the Sort of establishment of infrastructure, which is where kind of space mining starts to lend itself to being a core technology for the development of any of these industrial applications for the future space industry.
0: So something else that you mentioned that I want to circle back to is uh, the money side of it, because I think a lot of people will have been um, suitably impressed by the very large numbers you were throwing around in terms of uh, in terms of trillions of pounds that can potentially be earned here. Wouldn't that cause some kind of economic impact and disruption if uh one company or a handful of companies were to suddenly earn trillions because we have you know precious metals markets and uh you know a, a lot of people working in those kind of industries on earth if you suddenly bring back enough platinum to make it practically worthless aren't there going to be quite significant knock-on effects in terms of the economy
1: well i think that With platinum miners or terrestrial platinum miners, to pick up on that first point, um, they have the choice of getting involved in space mining. There's nothing, in fact, I would actively encourage sort of platinum mining companies um, to invest into asteroid Mining Corporation, to invest into my competition, um, because I think that in doing so, they are, one, bringing capital and experience to the industry, and two, um, sort of. Allowing them uh, a sustainable sort of um, a sustainability aspect for. Or economic and financial, and you know, environmental sustainability as well for the longer term. So, I think that with regards to sort of terrestrial platinum miners, um, we would encourage them to get involved in the sector, kind of now, um, rather than later, because if they choose to ignore space mining for the next 10, 15, 20 years, then they'll suddenly find themselves in a the position where we are sort of knocking up to Earth with, you know, fifty tons of platinum, and then the price might crater. That's not in anybody's interest. We want a steady depreciation in cost because it's not economically justifiable for them to go to have a massive reduction in cost of platinum either. Um They do have, they will have much higher capital reserves but if the price of platinum was to come down significantly then they would start eating into their capital reserves and ultimately it would be a game of checking to see who blinks. Nobody wants that. Um, so one of the things that sort of we do is we try to work with the mining industry in order to sort of provide sort of consultation and support, and facilitation for them to be able to move into this next period and sort of the extractive industry's history. Um, but beyond that, with the, the economic impacts, there's a, a very important point here, and I think it's a point which gets brought up quite quite regularly, and something which I feel quite strongly about is that we are. Going into space to, you know, the cover, recover um but it's not purely for for me and my shareholders. Um, we're going into space to do this for all of mankind. In fact, if we take our obligation under Article One of the Outer Space Treaty very seriously, which essentially states that sort of all space activities, including space resource activities, um, must be carried out in the interests and for the benefit of all humankind. So we take that incredibly seriously. And there's a question here about sort of how do you go about justifying space mining when some countries, you know, still have food insecurity, Um so there's countries which can't get sort of vaccines for the next year and a half yep. um, there are countries mm-hmm. which, you know um, are suffering with environmental damage, sea level rises some countries haven't even been into space yet, haven't had a satellite or have a space industry um, so how do we justify, you know, going and niching and ourselves and niching the planet at the same time and I think this is where the industry industry, and particularly asteroid Mining Corporation, um, likes to promote the essentially normative behaviour. So we are looking at the normative behaviour of essentially establishing the benefit-sharing mechanisms for space resources. So one of the the ways that we've looked at this would be a a voluntary contribution from the industry. for perhaps um, generous companies, it would be ten percent. For less generous and unscrupulous companies, it might be you know one percent. But we believe that there should be a, a almost a a, a a contribution from the profits of extracted material from asteroids and from space destinations, um, in order to you know fund things like education and healthcare and you know environmental protections, green technologies. Um, development uh essentially you could use the ditches of asteroids in order to help fund and secure the sustainable development goals from the UN and I think that that is one of the the very exciting opportunities that space mining proposes is that it, we do potentially have the the opportunity to massively contribute to the sustainable development goals and in doing so sort of enriching the the entire planet um, and I think essentially we're at the beginning of this industry and at the minute it's essentially it's it's a case of who gets everything first and what ethics and values and morals that they have will essentially form the basis of the normative behaviour of the entire industry and we like to think that essentially we have um, a, a workable and suitable um Proposal which would allow for you know wealth generation for shareholders and um, for sort of the company, but also would massively benefit the planet as well. Um, for example, if we were to essentially donate ten percent of our um, of our sort of profits from mining and space to um, development to Um, projects, so for example education healthcare, um, investing into hydrogen technology, electric vehicles whatever um, that would ultimately have a massive knock on effect because 10% doesn't sound like a huge amount um, but when it's 10% of 10 trillion that's a trillion pounds Um, and suddenly that Level of money has a massive impact. Um, even if it was one percent, even if it was at the lower end of that sort of of that asteroid, that one kilometer diameter metallic asteroid we talked about earlier, um, if you're to donate even one percent of that, um, to you know the developing world and help sort of essentially help the developing world gain space capabilities and you know develop satellites and the Maldives in order to watch for sea level rises, things like that become economically Sustainable and you know possible um, without sort of impacting on the budgets of these countries um, and sort of taking anything away from their GDP. Um, so that would seem to be sort of a major a major benefit. And again, one percent of ten billion is still a hundred billion. That is still equivalent to what. It's GDPs of nearly fifty countries, um, so it's even at a one percent level, it still would give sort of the um, what we like to call the first interplanetary development bank, um, sort of quasi state-like powers, um, and I think that that would essentially have a, a very interesting impact on the development of the industry because once well, there's kind of two aspects to it as well because this kind of great wealth that comes from these asteroids has to go somewhere so sort of from a, a company perspective and we will reinvest our profits back into things like establishing sort of more space infrastructure go investing into space technologies etc cetera, etc cetera. but with that developmental funding i think that it's very important to go about sort of writing some systemic injustices on our planet and i think that we have a, a moral and ethical duty to do so
0: yeah you've um you've touched on this a bit Uh, kind of with everything you've said already but you seem pretty optimistic so if you were in some sort of position of authority uh you know you're like minister of space industries for the uk or something like that how would you kind of guide the industry to make sure we have a successful but also kind of responsible industry
1: well i think that first and foremost um, as with any industry, and it's sort of it's sort of early infancy, um, funding is is always so beneficial. So, funding—I I know of at least five projects at universities in the UK that are currently sitting unfunded, which have direct application for space mining. Um, they are sort of they're led by world-class academics, but there's just there's not been the funding in place because there's not been in the eyes of you know some people commercial purpose for their research they've seen it's purely scientific research and i would disagree because i would say there's a, a direct commercial application um on in space mining space resources so i think that funding at the academic level and also at an industrial level would be something that i, I could only sort of only promote um but then beyond that i think that there's a, essentially a, a case for enabling legislation and regulation for the space mining industry um, that I think has to be made, and I have made this to sort of ministers in the past, is that essentially we need to have a economically, like, we need a febrile environment for economic development. So we need to have sort of an industry, industry-led approach, because we are still, you know, seven, eight years, 10 years away from sort of landing an asteroid. Um, So there's a lot of developmental work that needs to be done before we get there. Um, And that means that we can't essentially write the laws now, or we can write some of the, the overarching principles in law now, and I think that that is a very important and worthwhile thing to be doing. Um, but I think that also industry needs a bit of a free hand, or at least there needs to be a, an open and frank discussion between the regulator and between um, the operator as to what we're actually doing, how how long it takes, what the kind of what the technical capacity is. Because a problem that we have currently is that the Lawyers, are space lawyers. There's the, the regulator and the government, um, and then there's kind of the operator who has to essentially be governed. And at the minute, the lawyers are predominantly are not technical experts on sort of space mining itself, um, by some, some, sometimes by their own admission. Um, and then beyond that, there's also essentially the technical experts who do not have the kind of the legal um, angle. Um, so I think that my benefit here as an international relations graduate is to actually be able to have one foot in the technical side and one foot in the the regulatory law and policy side. Um, Because I think that that does lead to a sort of more nuanced view of what is possible, um, both sort of technically and from a regulatory perspective. Um, But I think that having a, a free hand for industry to grow and develop and, you know, we might make mistakes. Mistakes do happen. Um, we've already made many mistakes in this business, um, but we are still here. We're still growing. We're still thriving. And sort of within the next sort of three years, we expect to be sort of fully profitable as well, um, which is very unusual for space resources businesses as, as a general rule. So I think that and allowing sort of the market to essentially um, sort of a- allowing it to grow and flourish. There, there will be a free and frank discussion between sort of ourselves and the UK Space Agency or whatever agency we choose to work with in future, um, because there needs to be sort of mutual understanding and cooperation. Um, we need to be licensed and authorised by sort of the UK Space Agency, but the UK Space Agency also needs to know what we're doing and understand it. And I think that that only comes from having sort of open discussion. And I think that that sort of that level of transparency is something which is very important. In sort of having sort of forums for discussion as um, sort of very critical
0: so just as we kind of come towards uh, a close here um, just to, to kind of end on a, a bit of a lighter note um, what do you think about this Oumuamua uh, asteroid do you think it could be a, uh, a solar sail powered alien cube sat or is it just a big rock because I've heard it argued both ways
1: I'm very glad you've asked that question because this is a, a topic very much um, in my own heart. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's a damn shame that we didn't go and send something up to that asteroid. Um, I'm sort of somewhat of the opinion that it may have been our first signal from you know beyond the solar system to say you know there's something here. I, I obviously I've read quite a lot of science fiction books, so it just uh, immediately sounds like rfc clark's rendezvous with rama um you know the, the long sort of obloid shape of it the fact it looks a bit like a cigar the way it's tumbling um the speed of it its orbital path through the solar system and there's so many things which just mark it out as an interesting curiosity um that i think that if it had happened ten years into the future, we may have had the capability to go and you know visit it and just knock on it and say hello. What is there any, is there anybody inside this? Um, and I think that as part of that, that's a kind of that that would be the the, the interesting thing to do. Um, personally. Um, It may have been our first kind of cosmic visitor to say, hey, hello, you're not alone. Um, In the same way that, what, 40,000 years from now, um, what, Voyager 2 will go past... Is it Barnard Star and someone might look at that and go, hey, what's that? That looks weird. Maybe we should go and take a look at that. Um, maybe it could have had its own version of the golden record on the side or could have had uh, something something similar. Um, you know, big big carving, big graffiti on the side of it. Um, clean me, you're not alone. Something like that. Um, but I think it's, it's a damn shame that we never went and visited it because there's so many mysteries um, which possibly could have been solved and... Um, As a result of just getting close enough to it to look, maybe digging inside it, seeing what's there. Um, That's sadly something that we may never, never be able to know. And who knows, there might be another one coming by next week. We'll be ready for the next one.
0: Yeah, maybe if we hadn't spent so much time developing nuclear bombs and things like that, we would have had a more advanced uh, space project and we could have got out there and had a look. But maybe next time.
1: Maybe next time. It's, it's, it's possible that we, we could get another one in a lifetime. So it's always it's always yeah. useful to have it to have have it there. All
0: right. Well, just to finish, is there anywhere in particular that people should go to learn more about you and about your company? Or if there's just people interested in general in the topic of space mining or perhaps just the UK space industry? Because about 60% of our listeners are actually in the US, but I think everyone knows about the US space industry. Um is there anywhere in particular you think people should look if they're interested about uh you know space mining or you more specifically?
1: Well, I think that for if you want to find out more about Asteroid Mining Corporation, um, and for example, read the Project Exe report on the Asteroid Exploration Probe One, um, which you know has been censored in a very sort of Soviet bloc style, lots of black text on it. Um, you can go to www.asteroidminingcorporation.co.uk and find out more about us and our projects and what we're up to. Some interesting stuff on there. Um, if you're interested in the law and policy side of space resources, um, you, I would encourage you to go to GSRDC. Space—that's the Global Space Association Development Council, of which I'm a general secretary of that organisation as well. And that's focusing more on the kind of the law and policy and sort of development side of things. And that's like things like normative behaviour and um, sort of establishing the precedent for the industry, sort of in, enshrined in law. So that's, a, that's another interesting organisation if you're just interested generally and in, um, in sort of the in the space industry. Then I would recommend sort of pages like Gunter's Space Page, for example, um, or the British Interplanetary Society is always an excellent um, organisation to be a member of because um, they are the oldest space advocacy body in the world, and like Asteroid Mining Corporation, they're founded in, in Liverpool. So I would always like to give a shout out to BIS as well.
0: All right, well, I definitely don't want to take any more time away from your very important and impressive work. So thanks very much for coming on the show, and... Uh, Yeah, maybe we'll speak again sometime.
1: My pleasure, Chris. Thank you for having me.
0: All right. Thanks very much, Mitch. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Brighter Tomorrow. As this is a new show, we don't have a regular release schedule, so I strongly suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter at BrighterPod or join the conversation on Reddit at r slash BrighterTomorrowPod. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review as it really helps us to climb the charts and reach more people. Finally, you can email us at BrighterTomorrowPod at gmail.com if you want to say hello. Thanks again and see you next time.